Let me give you a biblical test, okay? Other than Jesus Christ, who does the Bible say was the wisest man that ever lived? I really expected better. Other than Jesus, who does the Bible say was the wisest man that ever lived? Solomon. Solomon. In fact, uh, even secular culture knows some of the stories of Solomon and his great wisdom as revealed in the Old Testament. He was famous for it, still is today. But what if I also told you that Solomon was the, the Bible's wisest fool? That he had a fatal flaw and it cost him dearly. And that flaw was found in his approach to loving God. It was the the way he loved God. That he didn't love God enough. As smart as he was, as wise as he was, as accomplished as he was, he really did not love God the way God wanted to be loved. His heart was divided, just like some of us. Solomon's father, King David, on his deathbed, spoke to his son and gave him a charge, gave him some advice. And in the book of 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, look on the screen. This is the advice King David gave his son on his deathbed. He said, as for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with what kind of heart? Say that again. What kind of heart? What kind of heart? A whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, notice this, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you. Now, follow him, serve him, love him with what kind of heart? Your whole heart. Jesus, on another occasion in the book of Matthew and also in the book of Luke, said that the greatest commandment of every commandment is to love God how? All your heart. All your heart. All your soul. All your mind. Not some of it. Not part of it. All of it. Jesus is saying your heart cannot be divided. Does that mean that If you love God the way he wants to be loved, you can't love anyone else or anything else? Well, no. God tells us to love people. But it is telling us that our greatest love, indeed our first love, must be him. And if he is your greatest love, if he is your first love, then your love for him shapes everything in your life. Now think about that a minute. When people are courting and falling in love, their passion for one another shapes their decisions about what they're going to do on Friday nights. They'll move heaven and earth to be together. And if Jesus is your first love, if he's your greatest love, then it shapes everything else in your life. It controls every aspect of your life. And it's a love that you do everything within your power to protect from anything that would diminish it, anything that would harm it, anything that would steal your heart from him, that would distract your life from living for him. 
So I invite you to open your Bible with me to the book of Kings, 1 Kings in the Old Testament, chapter 3. You'll remember that 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles tell much of the history of the Jewish people uh, from different perspectives, but tell many of the same stories. We're going to look at the life of Solomon as told in the book of 1 Kings, looking at some events from chapter 3 through chapter 11. I want us to, I want us to learn from so- Solomon because you know, we, we think of certain incidents in his life. We're going to take a, a broad scope, a broad look, if you will, at his life because we don't want to make the same mistake he made. Now listen to me. If the wisest man on the planet could make a foolish decision that brought pain to his life and family and to the nation. What makes us think we can't make foolish decisions? We need to learn from his failure. We need to learn from his foolishness so that we don't repeat his mistake, his sin, his failure, and we don't pay for it the way he and those who came after him had to pay for his mistake. Now Solomon as a young man started off pretty good. In fact, he started off real good. But there was a weakness. It was a a small hole in his character, a small weakness that was present in the very beginning that he refused to recognize and refused to do anything about. And what you're going to see today is as, as, as the years unfolded, that, that, that small opening in his character, that, that small opening in his relationship with Jesus Christ got bigger. And the same thing can happen to any of us. In 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 3, the beginning, the Bible says that Solomon did what he loved the Lord. Now that sounds really good. And it's true, he's genuine, he does love God. Solomon Solomon doesn't hate God, he's not running from God, he he loves God. And, And the Bible says, walking in the statutes of his father David. In other words, he was obeying, as best he understood it, the commandments, the expectations of God. In the middle of verse 3, there's a word. Now notice this. Solomon loved God, and he walked in those statutes, he was obeying God, Except, that's a big old but. He loved God, but. He obeyed God, but. He loved God, except. He walked in God's statutes. He he obeyed God, except. He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Now, you've got to understand some history to really understand what the scripture is telling us the jews were among a very small group of people on the planet who believed there was just one god who were monotheistic the vast majority of earth's inhabitants were polytheistic they worshiped many gods and they would construct idols from wood and stone and different things and they would build high places They'd find elevated spots on the terrain or they would actually move dirt and create a high space where they would worship all these pagan gods, where they would erect these pagan shrines and it was a place of idol worship and a place of pagan worship. The Jewish people did not yet have a temple in Jerusalem. 
they developed the habit of going to those high places. They were seen as places of worship. They would go to those high places and they would worship. Sometimes they would worship their own God, Yahweh. But over time, they started being polytheistic like all the people around them and worshiping their God while also worshiping all these other gods. We call it in, in theology and in history syncretism where you, you merge religions. Like today, isn't it popular today to say, well, we all worship the same God, so it really doesn't matter. That, that's not what the New Testament or the Old Testament teaches, but it's what's popular in our culture, and it's what they were starting to do. And Solomon was guilty of it. He loved God, but he'd find himself from time to time going to these high places and doing what in Scripture had been forbidden to do, where religions just get blended. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, the Bible had told the people of Israel, be careful. Be very careful that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every cultic place you see. Just because that's a a high place, a mound where groups worship and pagan, just because it's a place that's associated with worship by all these pagan religions and all these idols, you be careful. You, You don't bring your sacrifices to God to those same places. Because the consequences down the road are greater than you anticipate. I've personally been inside a, a Muslim mosque. I've personally been inside a Buddhist temple. I've observed. I've learned. As a Baptist, I believe in religious liberty. That's what Baptists believe in, that every group has the right to believe anything they want to about God. To worship what we think is just a piece of wood if they want to. To believe there is no God. Doesn't mean we believe they're right, but we believe they have the right to do it. And we'll defend that freedom. And participating in efforts to promote understanding and respect and toleration, that's good. But saying we all worship the same God is a falsehood. It's an illogical statement. It's a biblical untruth. We don't worship the same God. I can't go to a mosque and worship Jesus because it dilutes both religions, what we believe to be true. There's a difference in conversation and worship. They're not one and the same. And just like many people in our culture don't understand that, Solomon, the wisest man, was confused. And he loved God. And he tried to obey God. And yet God uses the word accept, but, and describing his behavior. And so in verse 4, Solomon is at Gibeon. It's a, a very prominent high place, but also in Gibeon was the tabernacle that Moses and those had in the wilderness. And the Ark of the Covenant. Because remember, the temple had not yet been built. And so he goes there to worship. And and while he's worshiping God in Gibeon, he has a dream. It it tells us in verse 5 that he dreamed at 9. And God said, ask 
Ask what you wish me to give you. Solomon, what what do you want me to do for you, Solomon? You're the new king of Israel. Your father's dead. Here's this powerful nation. You're the new king. What, What do you want me to do for you? And in verses 6 and following, Solomon says, God, I'm just a young man. I don't have a lot of experience. I don't know how to lead this people. I need wisdom. I need you to give me the kind of heart, God, that can discern between good and bad and true and false. Give me the kind of heart, God, that can, that can be wise and make good decisions so I can lead your people well. And in verse 10, God was pleased. The Lord was pleased. Because Solomon had not asked for what most people in life want. Solomon had not asked for wealth. He had not asked for a long life. He'd asked that God would enable him to be a good leader for God's people. And God was pleased. The same God who said in verse 3 that Solomon loved him and obeyed him, except. Have you ever, you ever looked at your children when they're young, looked at your children when they were adults, and you know they're not perfect, and you can even name things they do that you don't like, and yet you still look at them, and you love them, and you smile. And, you, and what, 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 what do we hear on TV all the time when someone does something bad? But he's, he was, he's really a good person. I don't know why he did that. Right? And, and, and we see the goodness in our kids alongside the what? The badness. And yes, our kids have both. Your, your precious grandchild has both. That's right. I don't want to admit it, but so do, so do mine. Well, no, I've seen it. <laughs> We're all sinners by nature as well as choice. But God looked at Solomon and he saw the good and he said, Solomon, that's a good thing that you want to do. And it pleases me. And God says, Solomon, let me tell you something. In the verses that follow in chapter 3, he said, Solomon, I'm going to answer that prayer. And I'm going to give you wisdom and you're going to be wise and you're going to be able to lead the people well. And I'm going to give you what you did not even ask for because you've asked such an unselfish thing. Solomon, I'm going to give you long life as well. And I'm going to give you wealth in addition to wisdom. And so in the chapters that follow, we learn about those blessings in Solomon's life. In chapter 4, There's a demonstration of his wisdom when the two women have a dispute over one child. And you remember that famous story? Both said it was theirs, that the other one's child died in that. They were trying to back and forth, back and forth. And Solomon, you know, just cut it in two. And no, the one who was the true mother threw her body. And, you know, his wisdom, great wisdom. Chapters 5 and 6 Tell the story of Solomon pulling together resources and negotiating agreements with other nations to construct the temple in Jerusalem. Chapter 7, he builds a magnificent palace for the royal family. And chapter 8, the temple is dedicated. Solomon is 
is, is, is being successful. Dreams are being fulfilled. He's, you, you could say he's keeping his political promises. <laughs> Isn't that a rarity? <laughs> I mean, things are looking good. And you come over to chapter 9, years have passed, and Solomon, when he'd finished building the temple, had another dream. In chapter 9, verse 2, the Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, a second time that he, he, he'd given Solomon a dream and spoken to his heart. Same way he appeared to him at Gibeon when, when, when he asked for wisdom years earlier. And if you drop down to verse 4 in chapter 9, God says to Solomon in this dream, he gives him both a promise and a warning. He says to him, as for you, Solomon, if you will walk before me as your father David walked. Now remember, David wasn't a perfect man, was he? But the Bible says David was a man after God's own what? Because David's heart was so in love with God that when God confronted him, David did what? Repented and corrected and changed his behavior. See, the the measure for how much you love God isn't what you feel and what you say, it's what you do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what? You'll keep my commandments. Jesus said, "Why, why do you say you love me and then not do what I say? David sinned like any human being, egregious sins at times in his life. But every time God confronted him with a prophet or, or directly, and David said, you're right, I'm wrong, and he changed. But not Solomon. The wisest man that ever lived was not smart enough to change when God said, change. God says, Solomon, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of what? Heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you and will keep my statutes and my ordinances then. If then, condition. If then, conditional, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. And just as I promised your father David, saying you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel, verse 6, but if you or your sons indeed turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes which I have set before you and go and serve, what? Other gods. And do what? Worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And he goes on to warn Solomon that if you if you go down that path, your descendants are not going to have the throne of Israel to sit on the way you and your father have. Things are going to change. Do do you remember that little opening in the character of King Solomon at the very beginning in chapter 3, verse 3, that he loved God and he walked in the statutes, he obeyed God except? What was that simple little thing he did in the very beginning? He began just a little bit 
to compromise and worship at the high places with the other pagan gods. It was just a little opening. It wasn't a big one. It was just a small one. But it didn't stay small very long. Because that little opening became much, much bigger. In chapter 10, his success continues. His fame spreads throughout the region. The queen of Sheba in Saudi Arabia comes to visit him because she's heard about him and she asks him all these questions just to test him. And at the end, she's blown away and said, your wisdom is greater than I'd even heard. And she returns to her home. But chapter 11, now years have passed. This is, you know, it's, it's just, you know, what, nine chapters in the scripture, but it's, it's decades. And in chapter 11, King Solomon did what? He loved many foreign women along with the daughters of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, etc., from the nations concerning which the Lord has said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. You want to know how many wives and so on he had? He was crazy. <laughs> Verse 3, more common than you might realize for Royalty in ancient times, verse 3, 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. But notice what it says at the end of verse 3. His wives did what? Turned his heart away. Now, go back to verse 2. At the very end of verse 2, after it says they turned his heart away after their gods, it says, and Solomon held fast to these, to all these women in love. He cared about them. And I'm going to suggest he cared about them more than he did God. I'm going to suggest he loved them more than he loved God. I don't know why he had so many wives. It was not an uncommon practice for royalty. Did it for political reasons to finalize treaties and military arrangements. Some of it was probably for love. It's how you would demonstrate your great wealth and power and prestige. He, maybe he was a sex addict. Maybe it was all of the above. The reason doesn't matter. See, the, the reason you disobey God is irrelevant. The motivation behind doing wrong doesn't matter because the outcome's still the same. Turned his heart away from God. Verse 4, chapter 11, verse 4. When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not what? What does the scripture say? Was not wholly devoted to the Lord as God. The way or as his, the, his father David's heart had been. 
verse 5, and so Solomon went after these different pagan idols and gods, and, and he built them places where people could go and worship. Now, what did God think about it? What was, what was God's evaluation of Solomon's behavior? Because in the end, isn't that the only thing that matters? What did God say about it? Well, look at verse 6. Solomon did what? What was evil in the sight of the Lord. Did not follow the Lord fully. Now, does that mean that he totally turned his back on God? No, because Solomon, if you were to ask Solomon, he would say, I love God. I serve Yahweh. I worship Yahweh. But he would also say, I worship this and I love these. Now, you and I are not going to build an idol and put it in our house. Right? We're, not, we're not going to go to some craftsman and, and find some figurine of precious metal that we set on a ledge and worship. I, there are some traditions, you know, non-Christian, where people do that. You and I are not going to do that. We're not, we're not going to carve out an idol. But isn't it true there are those things and those people who steal our hearts away from God? Who become the reason, the justification for our not obeying God, for our not following His will and purpose and plan for our lives? What's the difference? An idol is anything that we adore or long for to such an extent that it gets in the way of our following the commands of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, Solomon built a high place for the idol that uh, the people of Moab worshipped and uh, near Jerusalem. And then, then he built one for Molech, the, the god of the Ammonites. And, and, and in verse 8, he did that for all of his foreign wives. He built a place for, for worship for all those pagan gods. And verse 9 says, the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who'd appeared to him twice, those two dreams. Who commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. See, love for God, again, is not about what you feel and what you think unless what you feel and what you think and what you say also matches obedience to what God says. We have so dummied down what it means to follow Jesus Christ that it's become for some people nothing more than a mere emotion. For others, nothing more than a mere religiosity, a churchmanship, a philosophy of life. But it's about a relationship with the King of kings and Lord of lords that says, you are Lord, you are God, you are King. There is none other, and I love you supremely. And that shapes, that shapes and controls my life.
And I'll love my wife the way God says I'm to love my wife. I'll love my husband the way God says I'm to love my husband. I'll love the people in this community the way God says I'm supposed to love them. I'll base my moral decisions and ethical decisions not on what is popular, but on thus saith the Lord. And so God says to Solomon in verse 11, because you've done this, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you. God said, here's the consequence. I will surely tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Nevertheless, in verse 12, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father David, in honor of your father David. But I will tear it out of the hand of of your son. Verse 13, however, I will not tear away all the kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David and for the sake of Jerusalem. And when Solomon died, there was civil war and the country divided. And Solomon's son, the rightful heir, received the smaller portion, the southern kingdom of Judah. And another man became king of the northern kingdom. Ten tribes, the majority of the people of Israel. And listen, brothers and sisters, never again in history were the tribes to be united as one nation ever again. And it all started with that small opening in Solomon's character at the very beginning. Now you and I can learn some valuable lessons from Solomon. Let me point out a few. Small sins get bigger over time. Write that down. Small sins get bigger over time. You can't control it. You cooks out there, You make bread, you've got to put something in it to make it rise, to make it grow. It's like yeast, right? The Bible teaches in both the Old and New Testaments that, that sin is like yeast. It, it, it spreads. It's like gangrene. You can't stop it. Once you let it start, you can't control it. You've got to eradicate it. Small sins get bigger over time if they're not dealt with. It's like a, a leak in a dam, a small leak in a dam. If, if not fixed, the water pressure will make it larger, right? Until eventually the dam breaks. That's what sin does. It starts with that small inappropriate conversation with a person of the opposite sex at a ball game or at work who's not your spouse. 
And then the next time you talk, the conversation's a little more intimate. And then the next time, a little more intimate. And, and it's gradually getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it one day it just explodes. That's how sin works. Here's a second lesson. The consequences sometimes don't show up until years later. The consequences sometimes don't show up in life until years later. And in Solomon's case, the worst happened when? After he was dead. His kids paid for it even more than he did. Here's a third lesson. The impact may be greater on your children than on you. Solomon wasn't the one that had to live through the civil war and the diminished kingdom. His son had to experience that. But it was Solomon's fault. It was Solomon's doing. If you read the book of 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st, 2nd Chronicles, you read the prophets of the Old Testament. And by the way, this fall, I'm going to preach one sermon on each of the minor prophets. So go ahead and start reading them. But when you study the Old Testament, one of the things you'll discover is that very few of the kings after Solomon, very few of his descendants who sat on the throne of the southern kingdom of Judah, only a handful of them loved God, obeyed God, were good kings. The vast majority of them were bad kings, evil in the sight of God, and brought harm to the people of God. And it all started with Solomon not being willing to listen to God and fix that little crack in his character. How do we avoid making similar mistakes? Well, real quickly, number one, look beyond today. Do you know that most of the time when we give in to the temptations of Satan, it's because all we're focused on is that moment. Look beyond today. Look beyond the moment to the consequences of tomorrow and next year and a decade down the road. Be wise enough to step back and say, if I go this direction, if I walk down that path, what would it look like in a few years? Look beyond today. Look beyond the moment. Solomon wouldn't do that. A wise person does. Number two, develop biblical convictions. Biblical convictions for how you live and what you think instead of simply following the cultural norms. Because if you have biblical convictions, you won't be swayed by what the culture says. And number three, and this is especially for parents and grandparents. Number three, focus on the kingdom of God's future generations. Now listen to that. Focus on the kingdom of God's future generations. In other words, the ones who come after you. 
future generations in the kingdom of God. Focus on them more than yourself and the present moment. And that is especially true during your golden years of life. Because one of the temptations for all of us as we get older is for our vision of the world to become more narrow. Focus on the future generations who will be in the kingdom of God and the impact of our decisions and our example on them, on the kingdom of God a decade from now, a century from now. Don't make your decisions about life simply about this moment. So, not a rah-rah kind of sermon, is it? But you know, sometimes rah-rah is not what we need. Sometimes we just need something that calls for us to get honest with God and with ourselves. And the rah-rah comes afterward. Because can you imagine how different Solomon's family history would have been and how different the history of the, Is- of the Israelites but leading up to the day of Jesus might have been if Solomon had been willing to listen to God when God said, Solomon, stop it. Fix it. Change it. Can you imagine how on his deathbed, rather than hearing God say, Solomon, your son's going to lose the kingdom and it's your fault? He might have heard a more positive, exciting message from God. Rather than looking back at the end filled with regrets, he could have looked back at the end filled with gladness. You're writing the history of your life. You're writing the history of your family. You're writing the history of this church. What history are you writing? So listen to God. When He talks to you about big things, but listen to God when He sounds the warning bell on little things. Because you don't see down the road, but he does. He does. Let's stand. Father, thank you that uh, your word is so honest and so truthful. And we thank you for the good that it does in our lives. And I pray for each person in this room, myself included, that you will speak to our hearts and our minds and give us the wisdom to obey.